Hey, I'm Mike Bruce, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. Today, I am joined by Tyler Tringas, who is the founder of the Calm Company Fund, uh, which actually has, until today, was actually known as Ernest Capital, uh, completely new brand and creating a category, which, which we're certainly going to talk about today. So the, the timing is, is uncanny. Uh, Tyler's the founder of himself, started many Calm companies before with successful, successful exits. Uh, we've actually talked to Tyler before, if you guys remember, uh, before we had the podcast series and the Founders Forward, we did a webinar with Tyler back in, in 2019, and I believe Ernest uh, was getting off the ground with Fund One. Fast forward mm-hmm. to, to today, I think it's Fund Three and the Calm Company. Uh, Tyler, welcome. Thanks again for, for joining us. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. That was quite a throwback. I remember that that webinar that we did. That was super cool because it was like... Uh, establishing a lot of these kind of fundamental ideas for for some of the first time for for basically everybody. So anyway, um, yeah, glad to be yeah, chatting. Yeah, crazy. That was twenty. Yeah. It's funny. It was like that was pre-COVID. I remember because it wasn't COVID yet. You were in a WeWork in Mexico City, I believe. Yeah. And I think one of our most widely attended uh, webinars. It was yours and uh, Elizabeth Yin when we did that series. Yeah. And uh, there it is. Awesome. So glad to have you on the show. Uh, but before we dig into the Calm Fund, is it the Calm Fund or Calm Company Fund? Uh, I think both is good. Like formally, okay. we call it the Calm Company Fund because the basic idea is Calm Company X. Like we are going to be kind of gradually renaming all of the different crazy things we do to like the Calm Company X. Um, Got it. So the fund is just like one piece. It's kind of the basic idea. Okay. But uh, if it turns into a mouthful, Calm Fund is the right shorthand for okay. it. Okay. Yeah, because it's, it's okay. calmfund.com, for example. Okay. And and maybe just before we we jump into what the Calm Fund is, uh, what's your background? Like, how did you get to this point of becoming an investor and effectively creating a category of a, a whole new asset class uh, for early stage founders? Yeah, I mean, to keep the story pretty short, essentially, I had some pretty direct experience, um, both uh, like very early on in my career, um, you know, pitching uh, a traditional, what I thought, uh, pitching traditional VCs, a non-traditional business idea, or at least something that didn't really quite fit into the mold of what VCs like to back, um, and uh, turned out to have been a a really good business idea that essentially just like I couldn't get funded, couldn't get it off the ground, sort of deeply, uh, directly experienced for about two years of my life that there was this kind of gap uh, between tech companies, tech enabled companies, software companies, and the things that that the venture will um, will want to kind of put their weight behind. Um, and then kind of then went the complete opposite direction and bootstrapped a company, B2B SaaS business, very niche, uh, built the first version in like, uh, you know, basically 24 hours. Uh, we had paying customers within 72 hours of writing the first line of code um, and grew like a profitable, sustainable, remote bootstrap business and realized those businesses are pretty great too, um, but they also can really use some capital in the earliest days, even though once they kind of get going, you know, they're fairly self-sufficient and can kind of go off their own um, cash flows. 
is very hard unless you basically have an exit already under your belt or you know you have sort of family wealth or something like that it's very hard to get the initial kind of capital that you might need to go full time or to um yeah to basically you know stop freelancing or to make your first hire so you're you know stop doing every single job yourself that sort of thing um and so I, I really experienced that firsthand as well. I, I've been public about this. I basically financed that first business or not first, but <laughs> the bootstrap SaaS business uh, with credit card debt, you know, which is like not great to, to take out a giant amount of credit card debt and then have to pay it off um, over time. And it also doesn't come with any kind of support infrastructure, mentorship, community, nothing. It's just literally cash. So, so I basically just had this very direct experience of both the gap in the market and the specific need for um, what I kind of, I think personally knew and then felt comfortable betting was like a very, very big swath of entrepreneurs um, and decided to build the fund that I would have wanted to invest in my last company, basically. Um, awesome. And that was the genesis of Ernest Capital was literally rewind back, you know, six years prior to starting that, that most recent company, which I had just sold and say, okay, what was the, what, what would have been the partner I would have wanted to work with uh, at year one of the company? So. I'm curious, this wasn't on the, uh, the question list ahead of time, so I'm putting you on the spot, but uh, one of the things I think is interesting is uh, a lot of attention has been brought to underrepresented founders over the last 12 to 24 months, which is uh, really, really important work that uh, people are doing. And I think I saw someone, you know, friends and family has talked about a lot. Uh, yeah. You know, hit up your friends and family, right? Uh, and I saw some data yesterday that's like, stop, stop doing that. That's not a viable path for a lot of people. That, and there's some interesting data about um, family, like white households, I think like 16% of the U.S. population, I might be skewing this a little bit, but directionally correct, uh, like 16% million dollar uh, net worth like the families have, and black households is is less than 2%, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, if I get that wrong, well, we'll edit it. I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, what is the composition of like the, the Calm uh, Company Fund? Like, do you see more diversity because, um, you know, maybe you're supplementing the, the friends and family around? So I think this is a situation where um, the, the kind of case in theory, I think is very, very compelling. I, I totally agree with this in the sense that, um, you know, I'm not underrepresented by any means, um, yeah. you know, the white guy from a pretty standard middle-class family. But um, at the same time, I also personally really felt that exact pain acutely myself as well. I mean, uh, although I think you would categorize my family as middle class, my dad was an entrepreneur, ran a, a retail guitar shop, um, you know, so so maybe looked a little bit better on paper than he did in terms of cash flow. Um, yeah. And when I was pitching VCs and they were like, oh, you're too early, you should go raise like a couple hundred grand and friends and family around. I was like, look, dude, I, I, no one in my family has like a non-negative net worth, like much less being able to write me a, a like 50 or 100K check. Like you're out of your mind. There's nobody in, in my network that can write that check. Um, and so I totally agree that that that, that kind of um, cultural expectation that's like, sure, just go raise it from people that you know and then come back to us once you've launched um, really hits basically all categories of people that are, are economically disadvantaged in terms of family wealth. And of course, underrepresented founders, you know, just mathematically get hit the hardest by that. So totally agree, totally think it makes sense to get rid of that. And I think that's why you've seen so much like 
what I call just like misapplication of VC, right? Where mm -hmm. I'm not against like the idea of venture capital. I think it's great, you know, like moonshots have to be funded. It should exist and, and it's great. But um, what you often find is you have entrepreneurs who have an idea, but they just need like 150K to get started. And the only thing that will even consider writing that check would be VCs because the bank is going to laugh you out of there. You know, friends mm -hmm. and family don't exist. So what they end up doing is like, trying just to get the check to get in business and just kind of slowly warping and changing and, and, you know, moving off of their original idea to try and fit into a box that gets them the check that they need. And it kind of becomes like a one-way ratchet. They never really get back to the original idea, which was, which was actually quite good. Um, to answer your like actual question in practice, I think we, um, I don't have the numbers like right off the top of my head because we're investing in several companies a month. So it's a moving target, but yep. we are, I, I think we are um, better than the industry average, uh, but the industry averages are pathetic, right? So, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm unhappy with um, where we are. I think, you know, we're not anywhere near kind of a representative breakdown, but we do have, um, if you, you know, slice it by, um, uh, specifically black founders, uh, you know, founders of color across the board and female founders, you know, I would say it's probably somewhere between a third to half of the portfolio has at least one of those. Um, so, you know, a work in yeah. progress and we're trying to close the gap between in theory, how widely I think this should, uh, this should apply um, to, to a lot of underrepresented founders and, and what that looks like in practice. I will say just to shout out um, another fund that I'm a big fan of, Collab Capital has a very similar thesis to us. We, we share a lot of the same values, which I think we'll get into around like calm companies and things like that. But they are explicitly focused on the idea of backing black founders and that this is a great driver of generational wealth, right? Versus like creating one billionaire, you want to create like tons and tons of 10 millionaires, sure. hundred millionaires, et cetera. Um, so I definitely think the thesis uh, works really well uh, in terms of tackling this problem. When say I'm pitching a pre-seed seed round, early stage round, and I go to a traditional venture investor and they say back like the market's not big enough. Right? it's too small. I think that's very common. Uh, yeah. Is that like a good example of a company that would be a good fit for the Calm Company Fund? And maybe just like a good segue into like, what are the types? What are the values of the Calm Company Fund? What types of founders and you know, and in companies are you are you looking for? Yeah. So I mean, um, that is a good example. So you know, we're looking for. We talk about like sustainable, profitable businesses. Um, we're not necessarily looking for, you know, go big or go home kinds of, of risks. We're looking for basically just like normal entrepreneurship. Of course, you know, success is not baked in, um, but you're also, you know, not trying to say this is either going to be a total failure or a multi-billion dollar outcome, right? We're just looking for kind of bets that um, maybe have a, a little bit less of the like winner take all dynamics, the huge markets, the everybody's raising tons and tons of capital. And there's a race to, to who can, you know, lose as much money as fast as possible and take all the market share. Kind of like none of that is, is part of our strategy. It's a little bit more like back to basics, essentially. Um, and a big driver of when something will be a good fit for our model and not a good fit for venture is the total, the sort of first order total addressable market, right? Which is, mm -hmm. okay, yeah, this is just like a sort of 
you know, niche industry or consumer group or something like that, that's just not big enough to even do the, the napkin math to figure out how the company could be worth, you know, $10 billion, right? There's just no way. Like 100% market share, you're still only worth $700 million or something like that. Um, we love those kinds of opportunities. Um, in part, that's because we are focused on capital efficiency. So, you know, we are going to probably be the first round in there. And then we're looking for opportunities where we can also just be the last round. So there's not the kind of like round after round after round of dilution that mandates that you have to have these huge outcomes. Um, and there is definitely an intersection between that and um, underrepresentation writ large, right? I mean, it's not like mm -hmm. a, a very one-to-one, -one, but a good example will be from our first fund pretty early on. We invested in a company called, um, it's, a, it's a, a media brand called Unruly, and then they have a product called Yaluchi. Um, and the, the product is, uh, it's basically a, a, a managed marketplace of in-home hairstyling focused on uh, black women, right? So the, the, they had sort of, they had this blog, which is all about hairstyles for black women. Um, and they identified that actually the salon experience for black women, uh, some of the dominant hairstyles could take like six hours to, to finish. And so like, it's a very different salon experience than the 15 minute blowout, <laughs> right? And sure. they identified this pain point, they set up a marketplace. And when we were doing diligence on it, we actually found that several other companies had tried this in other cities. It's kind of a city by city thing. And I reached out to some of the entrepreneurs, did my own homework on it. And it turns out like the two ones that I really could dig into had both failed for the same reason in that they had tried to pitch VCs. They had gotten this feedback again and again and again. Oh, this isn't a big enough market. You know, black women in Atlanta is only so many people. And, you know, we can't see how this would be a billion dollar outcome. Uh, and they ended up just spending too much of their time fundraising, didn't fundraise and the company shut down. And so that was like a real green light for us to say, well, great, <laughs> this is a pretty yeah. good idea and VCs are not funding it. And we don't really care if they only take over, you know, uh, three cities and serve all of the black women in those cities. Like, awesome. That's a phenomenal outcome for us. So, um, yeah. Let's talk about outcomes. Um, you mentioned generational wealth and, and traditional, I'm never saying a, a, a calm company couldn't go public. I think you've, there's sure. plenty of examples of companies that do, but let's just say, you know, let's just take going public off the table. Uh, what are the outcomes that like you see for calm company? There's, uh, strategic folks, right? I guess there's dividends uh, through through cash flow, and then even just like maybe you could touch on what seems to be an emerging trend. Uh, you got folks like Microacquire now, which is a marketplace to find and, and buy SaaS companies and insure Swift. Like maybe just talk us through like what do outcomes look like for uh, what what calm companies could could have one day. Yeah, sure. So, so speaking selfishly from my perspective as an investor, right? How how do I and and our investors get our money back? Um, you know, the the financing structure that we use is the shared earnings agreement, and that bakes in the idea that if a company becomes substantially profitable, we basically participate in a profit share dividends. There's some nuance there, but you know, for the purposes of a podcast, it's profit share. Um, and so that's one piece is just the company becomes profitable. It starts throwing off dividends to the founders uh, as well as the investors. And, and we all make some money that way. Um, in terms of uh, like basically acquisitions, 
Um, I don't think we should take ideas off the table. Um, I, you know, uh, it's interesting because I treat a lot of that stuff in our kind of model of the fund as it's like free upside that's baked in, right? There's no reason, you know, I was just looking today at, um, I don't know the name of the company, but it, they, this, the headline was like, company raises a $540 million Series A right? Which is mm -hmm. not true. What actually happened was they bootstrapped the company to massive profitability for like eight, eight years without raising any, you know, external capital. And then, you know, the, the, the giant essentially private equity arm of one of these big VCs comes in and puts 500 million bucks in at like a multi-billion dollar valuation. The founders probably took a hundred million each off the table. I don't know anything about the specific deal, but we're seeing more and more of that kind of outcome where, you know, these later stage investors want to mm -hmm. come in and buy a chunk of this stuff that's really fully proven out. Um, one thing that I want to see and something we're working on, we launched this um, little experiment called Express, which is to take that idea and move it, kind of scale it down, right? So when you have a, a founder who you know, runs a 10 million ARR business, um, that represents like 97% of their net worth, <laughs> essentially, and they would like to take mm -hmm. a little bit of money off the table. We are starting to put the pieces in place right now. It's very experimental, but I think it's something we're going to invest more time into to create a secondary market for that, um, specifically around these sustainable, profitable businesses that don't have any immediate exit plans, because what you need is, is recurring secondaries, right? You need a, a pattern that says you can come in now and also every two to three years, we're going to do it again <laughs> so that you can get your money back at some point. Um, and so we're exploring that. And then there's also an entire network of everything from individuals now uh, up to like very sophisticated private equity operations that are very interested to acquire, you know, profitable, sustainable software businesses. Um, and, and it's growing more and more is all I can say about that. There's like a lot of interest in that space. There's a ton to go through there. Let's, um, maybe I wanna circle back to the seal, right? I think that was like the differentiator sure. at the time when Ernest at the time was was launched. Uh, it's been two plus years now. You have some data. Seals have been deployed. How have those worked in practice? Have you any changes there, or or still the the primary way you guys are are funding calm companies? Yeah, it's still the primary way we fund companies. Um, we have a very strong preference to use the terms. I would say probably eighty-five to ninety percent of the deals we've done have been on on that structure. We will occasionally. Usually, like if a small round is already in motion, we will sort mm -hmm. of not want to swim upstream and, and we really like the company. We want to back the founders and they're raising money on, say, for a priced round or something. We'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and do that. But in general, we want the bulk of the fund to be on the structure because we think it really aligns incentives. Um, it seemed like it would do that in theory when we designed it. And to your point, we now have quite a bit of data. And I think it it does do that. Um, one of the, the compelling aspects of it is that if I just take a 10% you know, straight equity stake in the company and the company becomes profitable, I get 10% of the dividends and I keep my 10% of the company if you ever sell. So there's very little incentive to actually pay those dividends to investors. And there's a lot of incentive to kind of like 
you know, everything from like good faith, straightforward manipulation of that to mm -hmm. like bad faith stuff of putting a lot of stuff on company cards that shouldn't be there and, and things like that. Um, the structure of the seal actually has a relationship between those two, where there's actually an incentive to make those profit share payments back because you're also, let's just say, reducing that 10% in that example. Um, it just goes down proportional to, I mean, the terms of each individual deal are unique, but the point is, as you make those payments, you're also reducing our implied ownership in the company. And that has turned out to be really cool because we've, we've now we've got, um, I think three, uh, we're just closing another quarter. So that number may change, but um, three companies in the portfolio that are paying shared earnings, which is honestly quite a bit ahead of schedule. We, we planned it to be several years um, before any any of them would be paying them, um, but they're paying them and they're excited to, right? Because the company's profitable, they're excited to repay us and there's quite a bit of incentive to do so because it's it's kind of a good trade for them um, in the sense that, you know, they're repurchasing their equity at probably cheaper than the market value <laughs> of it, but yeah. we're okay with that because we then get returns that we can essentially, you know, reinvest into more companies, so. Yeah, it's interesting. You create, uh, it's the company becomes more successful. It's de-risked for you. Uh, founder gets liquidity as well. They're paying themselves, but they also get liquidity through the the dividend and, or through the seal. Uh, yeah. And then you can take that money. And are you paying that out to investors? Is that the idea? Or is the idea to take yeah. uh, shared earnings and use it for, call it recycling and, and new investments? Right now, we're just keeping it simple and distributing it. Um, that's mostly a, you know, the difference between how elegant something looks on a spreadsheet and how difficult it is to do in terms of fund administration. There's yeah. certainly a universe in the near future where we just create an evergreen structure uh, that folks can opt into where it just continuously reinvests. Um, and I think that would be a very compelling offering. It's just, um, you know, the, the yeah. proof cost and complexity is high <laughs> for something like yeah. that. So, yeah. So you're pretty adamant. I think I saw this in a blog post today, uh, announcing uh, the new brand. You're, you're adamant mm -hmm. that you're not alt VC. You get kind of bucketed into alt VC. Um, why are you not alt VC? And why are you trying to create this category of, of calm? Yeah, I mean, I think it, alt VC is a pure sort of uh, happenstance term. <laughs> Essentially what yeah. happened was around the same rough time, several new forms of capital started to um, get some traction, get, you know, external funding, that sort of stuff. And it really ranges the gamut from uh, revenue-based financing products with like dedicated funds, like lighter capital and those kinds of folks who've been around for a long time, but they started to become more prominent. You had Indy VC, you had Earnest Capital, kind of very, you know, kind of similar kind of models. Then you had like Pipe and ClearBank and Shopify Capital and Stripe Capital and all these sort of things. And a, a common thread was that people were pulling together was like, hey, these are all different things you can do instead of your seed or series A round, right? And so they just kind of got lumped together into these trend pieces as like, these are VC alternatives, right? <laughs> just 11, yeah. 11 you know, uh, alternatives to your venture round. Um, but in my opinion, they really, first of all, I don't think the grouping makes a ton of sense. I don't think they really serve the same job to be done. Like, you know, revenue-based financing is great. We love, you know, Pipe and ClearBank and all this sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, usually you're talking about getting like one, two, maybe three months of MRR when you're at 5k MRR, there's nothing in that category that's going to write you a 200k check, 
right? That's mm-hmm. us and you know the NDVC model and venture, right? Um, so it was kind of like apples to oranges to pears to pineapples grouping, in my opinion. Um, but the the other thing is, you know, a lot of these products, and I think you know specifically ours at, at um, Calm Company Fund is we are really serving the vast, vast bulk of, of the market for entrepreneurs. Now we're not doing that yet because none of these things have big enough funds yet. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, if you look at the target market, it is orders of magnitude larger than what any good VC will tell you, which is, you know, we're here to fund the sort of 0.1% of the most high risk, high return opportunities out there. And we're just not interested in a lot of this other stuff. So, you know, I think it gets the carpet, it gets the sort of whole situation backwards to call this category of, of capital, you know, VC alternatives, when the reality is this is essentially a, a basket of, of options that are seeking to serve the the default, the sort of vast majority mm-hmm. of entrepreneurs and VC is the alternative. That's the one you should, you know, maybe consider uh, if you happen to have winner take all dynamics and a huge market and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, but, but most entrepreneurs should be looking at, you know, this stuff. So, so yeah, I, I think it's, um, it's just inverted essentially. I think Paul Graham says that too. Paul Graham's founder of Y Combinator. He sure. says yeah. like the default should be calm and then you decide from there. Like, where do we mm-hmm. want to go? Like, but he's like, raise five hundred thousand uh, dollars, you know, get ramen profitable, and then figure out what makes the most sense for your business. So, like, he he's says it as well. I mean, most investors do. Um, okay, but yeah. creating a category, like whether it's you're creating a category effectively, and I think you might have mentioned this too. Um, and the new brand is certainly part of that, uh, but that usually means like a lot of market education, money. Like, how are you thinking about educating the market? What are things that the Calm company is doing to, um, yeah, educate the market, create the category, and and get yourselves out there? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, we don't need to turn this into a full um, you know, branding <laughs> exercise because I'm not particularly good at it. Um, but, sure. you know, the, the challenge that we faced is this sort of like, we would explain like, okay, why are you different early on? And we were saying this stuff, which is like, well, that sounds like it should be the status quo. That sounds like, you know, common sense. <laughs> That's not like a differentiation. It's like, well, yeah, but the situation that we find ourselves in is that simply because of market dynamics, and I wrote this kind of long treatise about this, but but effectively like more and more entrepreneurship is moving into the realm of internet enabled software, SaaS, these sorts of things. Like that's where most of the entrepreneurial um, opportunity is. And VC has for too long been like the only thing that would fund this stuff because when my dad's generation went to go start, you know, his guitar shop, he walked into a bank and he got a small business loan. But the equivalent just doesn't exist. The banking industry doesn't fund, you know, a dedicated CRM for music stores, right? Which might well be mm-hmm. the, the equivalent opportunity uh, right now in this market. And there's been no no aligned entity for what is more and more the vast majority of all entrepreneurs. So we sort of said, okay, well, we need to define something that proactively points out what's different about you know, these kinds of companies versus just saying like, well, it's not VC, right? Um, and Calm was the thing that resonated the most. It's basically about like 
look, we're not going to necessarily, you know, have to do hyper growth, right? We want to grow mm -hmm. sustainably. We want to hire at a reasonable pace. We want to keep, uh, you know, some slack in the business so that, you know, if, if things go, you know, don't go perfectly according to plan over the next 12 months, we don't, you know, go up in flames, like all that sort of stuff. And, and it felt like every loop that we pulled on differentiation came back to this idea of sort of, um, of, of calm, of basically saying, look, we want to build it's something that's a little bit less hectic, less high risk, less, um, you know, less hair on fire. <laughs> and, yeah. and that turns into like some really concrete things. Like one example would be um, like employee retention, right? Is it is it just a different level of, of prioritization in a calm company, which says, look, I how do we architect our company around retaining our employees for 20 years, right? Um, versus you know, trying to maximize everyone's output for the next 18 months and work 100 hour work weeks and all that sort of stuff, which again, there's certain things look if you want to, you know, put a, you know, put a put a man on the moon, right? Uh, you want to launch rockets into orbit, maybe you need to work 100 hour work weeks. But you know, if, if you, if you want to, you know, start just like a straightforward niche SaaS business and build a great business for you and your customers and your employees, you probably don't need to work 100 hour work weeks. <laughs> you know, it's probably actually a net negative. Um, so anyway, so there's, there's quite a few things that kind of all come back to the idea of calm. And we said, let's just, let's try and, and inspire more. I think that the founders just naturally rallied to it. Like that's where we got the idea of calm, to be honest. Um, and the question is like, can we create more, um, more funds, right? More liquidity around the idea of funding calm entrepreneurs. Um, and that's kind of the big bet with trying to create a category, essentially. Oh, that's a good segue. More funds. So yeah, WeFunder, uh, I think that launched within the last week as well. So you guys are doing a crowdfunding campaign, raising capital mm -hmm. from the crowd. Uh, Backstage, I think it was paved the way for this. I can't remember. Totally. It was earlier this year, maybe late last yeah. year. But Arlen and, and team kind of opened up Backstage where anyone, don't have to be accredited, could participate. Uh, and, and be an investor in backstage. What was the decision to to leverage uh, the crowd? Is it you I mean you guys have a pretty engaged and big audience on on social and on the web? Was that that was that a factor? What what played into the role into um, kicking off a crowdfunding campaign? Because it is a lot of work, right? You really have to have things buttoned up. And uh, I think I heard the expression "your belt and suspenders on" the other day uh, <laughs> with a crowdfunding campaign, yeah. right? Because you're doing non-accredited. So like, why why did you guys go this route? Yeah, it is a lot of work. So, I mean, the one thing to point out is the crowdfunding campaign is not, it's not just like opening our funds to unaccredited investors um, in part because this is what we wanted to do and in part because this is what the SEC rules say. Um, accredited, unaccredited investors still cannot invest in funds. The actual Ooh. fund entities uh, still are completely accredited investors. So the crowdfunding campaign, both ours and Backstage Capital, um, and I think there's a couple others in the pipeline, um, is actually for a slice of what's called GP equity. So that's basically, I own 100% essentially of the idea of earnest capital and then now Calm Company Fund, like all of these funds are owned by one management company and that management company receives the sort of carried interest, the carry, you know, I know you know this, but just for people yeah, yeah, listening, is, yes, you know, yes. like this is essentially the equity upside of the entire idea of what we're building is that, you know, for every future fund that we launch, we're going to be receiving carry and that grows, assuming we 
a function of two things, how much money do we raise and deploy, and then how well do we invest it and how much comes back. Um, and the, the normal structure is you keep 20% of those profits essentially. So the, the other 80% goes back to the, the LPs, the people who invest in the actual funds. So what we're actually selling in this Reg CF crowdfunding campaign is a slice of all carry that goes to comp company funds. So the company that I own. So that's the funds we've already deployed, the fund we are currently investing out of, and all future funds that we ever raise. So it's kind of like being an angel investor in the kind of idea of Calm Company Fund, um, not any one fund. Um, so that's kind of an important, that was, I would say, most of the, the decision-making kind of calculus was, A, we wanted to do this round, and I'll talk about that in a second, and the other one was just giving more people the opportunity to put some skin in the game and get involved. Um, we had a lot of interest from folks who wanted to support us. And until now it was like, okay, there's literally no way. Every single thing we can think of requires accredited investor status. And a lot of people you know, don't have that. Um, so that was like a, a nice bonus to be able to just get at this point and think about 800 more people on the team, so to speak. Um, but the main thing is, is that we wanted to raise this equity round because the capital actually goes to the management company, not into a fund. And that's pretty unusual. It does happen among venture funds and stuff like that. Again, it's called like buying and selling GP equity. It's pretty rare. There's not a super active market for it, but it does happen. The main reason to do it is very similar to why you would raise an equity round for a startup, right? The idea is like your, 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 your size is currently here. Your opportunity is much, much bigger, right? And you need yep. some capital to sort of bridge the gap. And most funds aren't, don't really have that dynamic, right? If you go to market with a $120 million, you know, seed venture fund with three GPs, the odds that you're going to be 10 times bigger in five to seven years is very low, right? You pretty much like, that's what you're going to be. That's the right size. And you're just going to carry on. We're in a similar situation closer to a startup than a traditional fund in the sense that we're operating in what we think is this huge, huge market opportunity. And we are quite tiny. And so the, the point of raising this kind of equity round of capital lets us continue to build out the team, continue to invest in the platform ahead of the actual assets under management that we foresee, you know, achieving in the future. So it kind of bridges that, those two universes essentially. Great segue, you're killing it. I'm gonna have to create awkward segues. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. Uh, so you're talking about investing platform future. Trailhead, is it called Calm Company Trailhead or is it gonna have a new name now? Yeah, we, we've basically just made it the default way that you uh, submit an application now, okay. actually. So it's it's kind of being debranded uh, because okay. it worked. <laughs> okay, okay. So cool. So I want to maybe take a sec back. I think the genesis of Trailhead was how can we better uh, teach, empower, and, and kind of provide guidance on what calm companies should look like and understand how our process works. And you kind of go through uh, a course, if you will, uh, maybe an acceleration. Um, has, has, so is that changing now to where it is primarily just a way for you to to apply to the Clum Company Fund? Yeah, it just, well, so the genesis of so many things that we do is basically that the user experience for founders sucks most of the time, right? Just like every aspect of working with most investors is just really painful. It's very like the power dynamics are all skewed and annoying. And 
I don't know. I figure like we sort of have a unique moment to be able to just say, let's just rethink as many of these things from first principles as we can. And one of those was the process of, you know, submitting your information to to a fund to to be considered for for funding um of course there's the whole you know tangent about warm intros we're very against the idea of warm intros i think it's absolutely insane that there are funds out there that only take uh warm intros um but leaving that aside even our initial just kind of application form was kind of it's kind of like just this lengthy time suck for founders and we said well can we make this better and the experiment that we launched, we, we kept both. We said, hey, look, if you're going to rush, you want to use the form, go for it. Um, but we also said, um, actually, what we'll do is we'll create some educational content that will both give you our view on a particular mm -hmm. aspect of the pitch, as well as a bunch of resources you can look at. So we might say, like, not just like, what's your total addressable market, you know, field, right? We'd say, like, here's how we think about total addressable market. Here's some good, you know, resources to read and learn about it. And now here's an opportunity for you to sort of fill it out. And hopefully this is a useful exercise for you, even if, you know, you don't even want money from us, <laughs> right, was the sort of standard that we set for ourselves. Um, and we launched that as a separate parallel process. And uh, initially it was this kind of like sequence of emails that took a couple of weeks. Um, now we've basically just built uh, this really cool, like no code app inside of Webflow. So you can fill it all out on your own schedule. There's, you can do it all in one go, or you can come back and save and all that sort of stuff. And that's now just the way that you apply to for okay. funding from us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to make sure I'm respectful of your time. And so we're going to run through a couple questions and, um, then go from that. So micro SAS, you write a lot about it. We'll make sure to blink or blink. We'll make sure to link to it. Um, and we, we talk about like intersections quite a bit at Visible. Like you're likely never going to be the best YouTuber. You're probably not going to be the best ukulele player in the world, but you might be like the best ukulele player that puts their videos on YouTube. Um, totally. and, and you mentioned the example of building the CRM for guitar shop owners. Like what are, are there certain verticals you do and do not like? What kind of traction do founders need? I'm listening to this. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. This all sounds like me as a founder. What should my company look like to be you know, considered for investment from, from the Calm Company Fund? Sure. I mean, we we have a post that, that probably we can just link to that's just yeah. called like what, what we invest in. One of the things we try to do is just like as we start to reach clarity on a lot of that stuff, we just publish it so that folks have, you know, that that knowledge ahead of time. I would say we're super interested in like vertically focused. B2B SaaS. Um, so what we often see like as a pattern of things that are a great fit is a founder who works in a particular industry that's a little bit niche. I mean, just, I mean, it doesn't have to be like completely obscure, but it's like, oh, you worked in whatever the film industry, you know, for 20 years and you realize there were some horrible workflows that were being done with spreadsheets and sticky notes and whatever. And you learned to code, you found a technical co-founder and you built a really cool product for the industry that you worked in, sold it to your first, you know, first to your five friends in the industry. And now you're starting to get a little bit of traction. Um, that's a great fit for us. A lot of people ask, well, how do I get that? One thing is just, I think to explore widely uh, for those intersections, right? Like you'd said, mm -hmm. you know, trying to find the different domain expertise that can sort of overlap to create that opportunity. 
sometimes I think a really good thing to do is just to be a consultant, right? Especially if you are technical, if you can code or if you have some other, you know, marketing or some kind of skill that's, that's kind of cross industry, um, consulting widely and just, you know, kind of intentionally picking opportunities in interesting industries to try and see if there's an opportunity there to build a product um, is actually, I think, a really good strategy for, for a lot of folks, especially if they're currently freelancing. And so that's, it's pretty easy for them to kind of dive into something for six weeks and then, and then move on if it's not a, um, not, you know, not the vein they want to keep digging. Um, but yeah, and otherwise, I mean, kind of the basic parameters are like, we're, we're very interested in, you know, recurring revenue businesses, B2B, but we can stretch a lot of those attributes. We do some B2C, we do some stuff that's non-recurring, but we're not going to do like, I don't know, we don't do like mo ad supported mobile gaming, right? You know, it's got to be kind of in that same universe. And then we're just basically looking for post-product, post-revenue at this point. Um, we have some stuff in the works to try and experiment a little bit earlier um, than that. But at this point for our you know, bandwidth and resources and all that sort of stuff. Um, we need the product to be launched and we need some people to be paying some money for it, but it can be very little. Um, so as little as even a thousand dollars a month in revenue is, um, is place we've done deals up to a million ARR. And we've got, you know, products in the works that would, would extend up to 10 million in ARR, um, for folks. So, uh, that's it's a pretty wide range, uh, but it, it doesn't really extend to much earlier than you've launched a product and you've got some revenue. And if I take uh, capital from the company fund, am I excluding myself from raising venture later on? Maybe that uh, example of writing movie scripts, all of a sudden I now found my way into like the most dynamic text editor in the world and yeah. blowing up and and like do i exclude myself from from raising ca venture capital in, in the future and, and what have you seen play out there you definitely do not um so uh you know we go to pretty great lengths in our financing structure for example in terms of like not creating any landmines for raising a venture round basically if if you have that exact ex, you know experience, you say, hey, actually, there's this adjacent market. It's much, much bigger. We want to go for it. We're going to raise a Series A. Um, our terms are set up to just completely convert, uh, and we would just participate in that round, and any special profit sharing or any of that stuff just all goes away. Um, so you know, it's it's very backwards compatible with the the venture trajectory or just raising more capital in general from any kinds of investors. Um, and so structurally, uh, nope. Um, you know, precluding any of that stuff. Uh, I will say we do, we are pretty honest with folks that are like, if your plan is definitely to do this, um, we are not likely to be like the best partner per se. You know, mm -hmm. there are definitely some seed funds that one of the things they cultivate expertise in is helping you raise your next round. Um, we don't really, I mean, we, we have had some co companies that have gone on to raise um, some follow-on financing we pitch in, we make introductions where we can, but it's not something we see as our core competency. So if you're like 100%, we're raising another round in 12 months, um, we might not be the best partner for, for that trajectory. Um, but we have seen it happen. We have seen a couple of companies raise just kind of not necessarily venture rounds, just basically they were growing well. They thought, um, let's go raise another couple hundred thousand dollars to uh, basically just you know, increase our cushion, hire some folks more aggressively, um, 
and we've helped do that. We've sometimes structured like an SPV uh, to help folks follow on. Mm. We, as a rule, don't do follow on investing um, out of our fund. We don't like reserve anything for for follow ons, and we don't want there to be the kind of uh, um, uh, signaling, I guess, is what people call it, like whether or not we participate being a signal mm -hmm. to other investors. It's just we never do it across the board, so there's no signal. Um, and then we have had uh, one company, I don't know if I can announce it yet, but we have had one company subsequently decide, hey, this is actually a really big market. They went through YC and recently raised like a much more traditional, like, you know, it, to me, eye popping valuation kind of uh, seed round. Um, and I think I can't talk about that yet, but but there is one. Um, so it's, it's more than zero. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, great. A couple more questions. Um... I have one that's not on here. Um, you, you mentioned you'd walk into a bank, get a loan for you know retail business, starting you know, guitar shop. Do you think you will ever get to a place of that level of, I know it's not fully automated, but that is not a process like of raising a trad traditional venture round. Like, do you think that there's an opportunity for comm companies to go through, call it a very non-subjective fundraising exercise where they might be able to get equity for their business based on, you know, metrics, their previous experience, like call it automated uh, investing. So I think automate, automated investing is achievable slash, I mean, practically already exists when you're talking about what is effectively debt um, yep. and use cases for debt, right? So you know, a lot of these the companies I was mentioning earlier, like ClearBank and, uh, and Pipe and Stripe Capital and that sort of stuff. You know, when you're talking about debt amounts of money, debt repayment terms, you know, debt interest rates, debt underwriting, I think you could get pretty automated, to be totally honest. I still view what we do as being kind of more on the equity end of the spectrum, where you're really trying to make an early bet on a company changing the trajectory of their business, not just funding the operations, right? Going from a solo founder with a side hustle to like a proper profitable company is not a matter of like funding operations. That's a, a mm -hmm. bet that it's going to change the trajectory of the business. Um, I, I think is, I, I mean, my mind is open on this topic, but my current opinion is that I don't think that can be possible um, to be done in an automated way. You have seen like variations of kind of automated spray and pray kind of uh, approaches in, in venture. You've seen like some hedge funds try it, like social capital tried this thing where it was just like fully mm -hmm. automated at global like seed financing. And I don't know if it worked or didn't, but none of these things have doubled down or continued. Um, so I'm going to assume they didn't really work mm -hmm. all that spectacularly. Um, I think you really do need a, a human to really understand the, the potential um, of the business at that moment. And the way I see the, I, the way I see this kind of thing scaling is actually quite similar in a lot of respects to the small business lending industry, which is you sort of empower frontline individuals with lots of tools and mental models and, you know, abilities to underwrite. So you might, for example, have somebody who's 
let's just fast forward like, you know, 10 years into the future and Ernest funds 10,000 companies a year. Like, how does it do that? In my mind, it does that with a lot of frontline people, basically GPs, people writing checks that have a ton of shared tools where they're able to quickly get industry comps, you know, see competitors, understand the market, get a lot of like shared research, that sort of stuff to be able to make really effective decisions. But at the end of the day, they are, and they probably have a ton of automation and tools to help them be super productive and efficient. But at the end of the day, they are still understanding the business, understanding the founder, understanding the traction and pulling the trigger. Love it. Uh, three questions we get from all guests or we give to all guests. I'm curious to hear your answers to these because I think these are these are probably more unique to uh, a traditional venture investor. Um, and, and we talked through some of these, but I'm going to ask them because we always do. Uh, what catches your eye in a cold email from a founder? Um, a screencast <laughs> of the okay. product working. Uh, I think that's something that is often lacking. And it's one of my favorite things to see is, hey, let me take you through this product, how it works. Bonus points if there's also some metrics associated. But like that is my favorite uh, deliverable in a pitch is like, let me just walk you through in three to five minutes, um, everything about the business, including actually looking at it. The, the corollary to that is that I absolutely hate the like explainer videos where it's like some talking head and some ukulele, you know, background music and stuff. It's like, yep. yeah, this, this could have been literally three sentences. Um, let's move on to the actual product. So, yeah. If, if a founder thinks they're a fit for earnest, uh, we know a plot that's where everyone's going through no warm intro so i think that's sure. the answer to that question but is there if a community member i know Ernest is huge we didn't even Ernest, sorry calm company it's okay. um, yeah. <laughs> i know I, I did pretty good this whole episode yeah yeah uh, this we're, is, we're, this we're is just 60 minutes old transition phase you know more people listening to this will probably know Ernest than calm company yeah. so it's probably better if we mix and match you know <laughs> uh so you know, we didn't even get to touch on, on community today, which is a huge differentiator as well, in my opinion, but does it help to have the referral, someone shoot you a note, hey, or is it truly not subjective? And it's like, well, we look at the business, we don't care if it was, you know, referred to by someone in our community. Yeah, I, I mean, warm intros, I think do help. I'm not fully on board with the, um, getting a, you know, someone who is a, an LP in our fund who deeply understands our investment thesis and a founder applies and then they have a personal relationship with one of our investors and they nudge that investor to say, hey, can you just say, here's why we think we're a great fit? Like, I'm not necessarily sold on the idea that that's bad, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, what I think is bad is the gatekeeping where there's literally no other way to, to get on an investor's radar. I think as long as you're keeping that line fully open and it's not, you know, it's legitimate, like we really check it, we really do like do deep dives on all of that. It's not just a sort of honeypot uh, where we still mostly do it via warm intros. Mm -hmm. um, I think as long as you're doing that, um, you know, you're, you're doing the right thing to make sure that you're seeing all the opportunities and also creating a level playing field. But no, I mean, certainly, you know, we have a, a really significant growing community between um, the, the mentors, the investors, the portfolio mm -hmm. founders, and then the founder summit, which we co-run with Wishers of Capital, which is just a broader kind of like 
group of folks building calm companies that have there's no filter of you know we have to invest in them or they have to invest in us it's just a bunch of like-minded folks um for sure it, it does help you know to to sort of get that signal um cross-reference from, okay. from multiple folks especially like when you have a differentiated thesis right you know so we'll, we'll, the problem is a lot of people refer us stuff that is maybe interesting but is actually not a good fit for our thesis so um you know i don't know yeah it's good okay i'm gonna take care it but you can still 100 percent apply without knowing anybody associated with the calm comedy fund in earnest so just know that Absolutely. Um, yeah. 95% or more of the companies we've backed came directly cold through a form and that's it. Yeah. There we go. That's all you need to know. 95%. And two more questions. Um, one is what's this is be curious, like traditional venture round again. I'm trying to get 50 meetings, two week process. I get some competitive term sheets at the end. I'm not sure what founders are comparing. There's not many similar funds to yours. Um, so I, I'd be curious to hear like, how are they comparing to other options or is it just bootstrap? And what's the number one thing founders can do to speed up their fundraising process, like getting a check from the Calm Company Fund? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, I, I often say like the main thing we quote unquote compete against is bootstrapping, right? Usually mm -hmm. when um, founders are you know, deciding whether or not to work with us, the main uh, alternative path is not another fund. It's just not raising for many investors. Sometimes it's just a, a feel thing. It's just like they just, they're not sure that they want the hassle of having mm -hmm. other partners involved, despite the fact that we kind of like bend over backwards to make it clear, like we don't take a board seat. We don't have any control. Like I'm not going to be hounding you for, you know, your monthly numbers, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people just have first, second, third hand bad experiences with investors, period. And, you know, they're, they're ultimately quite hesitant to, to work with folks outside. Um, and then, you know, there is, of course, the, the opportunity cost, right? There's always the, the thing where founders are sort of infinitely optimistic about the, the future potential of, of their company. Um, and investors have to, you know, weigh the upside with the, the risk. And um, sometimes we, we have had founders who just said, you look, you know, like, the, I, I'd rather just keep 100% of my company and not, you know, quote, unquote, sell whatever, you know, mm -hmm. 10, 8% or something. Um, and uh, yeah, but that's usually the main competition in terms of speeding it up. I mean, I don't know. We try to make our process super fast um, and and that's kind of all we care about. <laughs> yeah. I don't have any tips for, for how Perfect. to run a process more efficiently. <laughs> Great. Uh, last question. I uh, sourced a bunch of these questions actually from people online. So thank you for sending these in or DMing me. Uh, this one from Janet uh, did not fit into my script. So this one's just at the end. I think a good way to wrap up. You've started multiple companies now, launched a couple funds. Uh, which phase have you found most enjoyable? Is it ideating, testing, like the growth of it all? Like where where is like your zone of genius, and and that, what what do you enjoy doing the most? Uh, hmm. I'm going to answer this question, although I'm not sure that enjoy is exactly the right word. I think, <laughs> I think there's an element of like, um, you know, just where you feel like you actually have competency and are adding value, even if it maybe is slightly unenjoyable. And for me, I think one of the things I've found out that I'm pretty decent at personally 
is just like navigating that early phase when you kind of have product market fit and you're spinning a million plates and you have an infinite to-do list and things are on fire and your whole job as a founder is basically just to like get to the next milestone, right? It's like, yes, you know, you're, this part of your business sucks, but the only way to get there is just to power through to enough revenue to be able to hire the right person to fix that part of your business and just kind of like staying sane, dare I say calm, like through that part of the process. And the thing I really like about my job now is basically I'm just sort of like coaching other founders through that part of the process, right? And a lot of what I end up doing um, on our like, we actually just renamed our, our weekly Zoom call. We have an open Zoom call that founders can just drop into. We used to call it like the all founder Zoom call or whatever. And now we just call it founder therapy because it's just like anybody yeah. can stop in and just talk about stuff. And frequently all I'm doing is saying like, hey, I know this is stressful. This is normal. This is the job, right? <laughs> like this is all you have to do is just like get through this, but there's nothing unusual about this. Let's just like figure out the next steps put the priorities in order and move forward. Um, and so I, I really like that phase. Um, and I like that, you know, basically I just get to help founders continuously sort of navigate through that. So, yeah. There it is. What a great way to wrap up. Uh, Tyler, thanks again. Uh, you guys literally launched the day. Today's June 22nd. I'm not sure when we'll launch this episode, probably in a couple of weeks, but uh, you launched the new brand. Congrats on that. Thanks for taking time out of the launch day to, to chat with us. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, man. And thanks for, for all the support. I mean, it's been great working with uh, with Visible as well. Um, we, we use the product every day and it's been awesome to sort of like co-develop a number of features and stuff with you. So yeah, um, I wasn't yeah, fishing for compliments, but I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll cool, talk man. to you soon. Great chatting.